When we met last year, uh, Andrew and I, we were talking and we thought we would uh, do the sermon a little bit differently. We, we had something called Ask the Pastor. We did this uh, last year and we took questions from you, questions that you would like for us to answer up front here. And uh, so this is not going to be in a sermon type uh, format. It's more of an answer type format. We initially, I think, had uh, four questions that we were going to try to tackle, and uh, we've uh, brought it down to two because these are very big questions that you guys ask. And uh, so I'm going to try to tackle the first one. Uh, Andrew will try to tackle the second one, and then we'll open up the dialogue. So it'll seem disjointed because I'm going to answer the, try to answer the first one, and then it's going to be like a break, and then Andrew's going to totally shift to another one. So um, if you are taking notes, which I hope that you are, and if you don't have a pen and paper, you can always take notes uh, on your phone. We won't assume that you're looking on Twitter to see what Trump's doing today. Um, so if you want to take notes that way, that's fine too. And then afterwards, uh, we, can, we can have a dialogue. So that's kind of the format. It's a little bit more casual in nature, but that's the format. So um, the question I am going to try to answer today is which Old Testament laws are authoritative for today? Which Old Testament laws are authoritative for today? Very easy question to answer in about five minutes, so I'll be done in no time and you'll be good. Are you recording that? I've got it recording here, we're fine. Um, so uh, I'm gonna put up uh, four Old Testament laws for you, and I want you to consider, as each, one, each of them comes up, I want you to consider which ones are authoritative for me? Which ones do you think are authoritative for the church now? So first of all, in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, you shall have a Passover, a feast of seven days, unleavened bread shall be eaten. One of the Old Testament laws, and one of those that uh, we have to deal with in terms of do we observe it or do we not. Secondly, Leviticus 18, verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female, it's an abomination. You have to just, I want you to, in your mind, I want you to be thinking, is this authoritative uh, today or is it not? Okay, that's the second one. Third one. You shall remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. You shall remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. It's one of the Ten Commandments. The question is, is this authoritative for today? And then finally, you shall not round off the side growth of your heads nor the corner of your beards. Is this authoritative for today? If it is, we're in deep trouble. <laughs> So the question really is, is, are these authoritative for us? And uh, this is you, right? So are these authoritative for us today? And as you went through them, there was probably maybe one that you thought was authoritative for today, maybe two, three. How many of you thought that, and again, you're, I know um, this is just show of hands just really quickly. How many of you thought that all four of them were authoritative for today? Three, two, one, next question is this, don't answer this. On the basis of what? On the basis of what do you think they're authoritative for today? This is a big question. I'm gonna end with a scenario this morning that was uh, raised to a friend of mine who found himself really stuck as he quoted something from the Old Testament that he thought was authoritative and uh, this person turned around and gave him another one of these obscure laws and said, well then, do you observe this? Well, no, well then tell me why I should observe yours. These are tough questions for us to consider, tough questions for us to answer, but I'm gonna give it a shot. 
Because this is a large question, um, I'm going to refer to a number of different passages. Uh, the ones that I want you to turn to, I'll, I'll tell you. The rest, if you're just taking notes, you can just jot them down. And, and sorry, I'm going to refer to a lot of different passages, but you can just jot them down for now. So why are some of the Old Testament laws, um, why do some of them, why do we consider some of them authoritative and some of them others not? Um, are they authoritative for my life? And if they are, which ones are? And if they aren't, which ones aren't? And if they are, why? And if they aren't, why? These are big questions. The Bible is broken up into two parts. The Old Testament and the New Testament, which really means the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The New Covenant was ushered in by Jesus Christ and replaced the Old Covenant. If you're taking notes, you can jot down Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through to 13. It's talking about a new covenant. It's a quote from the Old Testament. It says this. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. The first covenant is obsolete. When the new covenant came into Jesus Christ, the first covenant was obsolete. So what changed? I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. That sounds like a 747 taking off. Huh? I've never heard that sound in this building since we started here. Have you guys? I've never. Is that the air conditioner? Yeah, it is. Is it too loud? Maybe. No, no. I like the. No, if it's air conditioning, we need it, right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's never been that hot in here. <laughs> Must be the subject matter. No, it'll get hot when he does his subject matter. You can trust me on that. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. This is Jesus speaking. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. If you have a pencil, you're underlining words, that's a good one to underline is fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. When you read this originally, initially you think, oh my goodness. Not one letter, not one stroke shall pass away until all is accomplished, until all is fulfilled. So we need to be observing everything in the Old Testament. But something changed. Something changed. When Jesus came, he fulfilled the law. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. He took the law to its rightful end. Where the law was pointing, where the law was heading, is where Jesus actually took it. So Jesus was actually the end of the fulfillment of the law. It was all pointing towards Jesus Christ. Uh, in Romans chapter 10, again, if you're taking notes, you can just jot this down. Romans chapter 10 and verse 4, you don't have to turn right now. But it says this. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He didn't come to abolish it. So when you think about the changes that have happened in the law, you have to think about it in terms of it being fulfilled. So then what specifically did Jesus fulfill? In other words, obviously there are some changes that have happened. So what actually has been fulfilled? Number one, Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the ceremonial laws. 
Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws are therefore no longer authoritative for us because Jesus fulfilled them. Jesus, of course, is called our high priest, and he's called the last, the final sacrifice. Therefore, any Old Testament worship regulations, any Old Testament worship regulations, from laws for how the priests function, to all of the temple laws, to keeping your distance from the Holy of Holies, to offering sacrifices to God, are completely and utterly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's why they are no longer authoritative for us, because Jesus fulfilled them all. None of them are necessary for the new covenant. Countless laws in the old covenant, none of them are authoritative for the new covenant. Why? Again, Jesus replaced the whole sacrificial, the whole sacrificial system with his own sacrifice. That's first and foremost. Jesus replaced the whole sacrificial system with his own sacrifice. Again, that's Hebrews 10, verses 8 to 12. That's why sacrifices are no longer in place. I know that there's been rumors that, uh, the new, that uh, there's going to be a new temple going to be rebuilt. Andrews, I think, has probably spoken about this in a few weeks, uh, in weeks past. And this notion of the, the priests are getting their garments together and they're going to put this whole, this, this whole notion of the temple being redone and maybe sacrifices being reintroduced. So we think, oh, what's it going to look like and how are we going to respond to that? For us, all sacrifices in the Old Covenant are completely gone because Jesus fulfilled them all. Any Old Testament laws pertaining to the sacrificial system is therefore gone. It's completely obsolete. In addition, access to God now comes through Jesus Christ. Remember before, all of the laws surrounding the Holy of Holies, priests could only enter once a year. But now, Jesus has fulfilled that because we have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. So this notion of being clean or unclean, when can you appear before God, when can you not? Can the priest do it? Can I do it? Who can, who can't? Now we have complete access through Jesus Christ. So any laws pertaining to this distance we need to keep from God are completely gone. And of course, symbolically, uh, I love what happened when Jesus died on the cross and the veil of the temple was torn in two. That's complete access we have to God. Lots of Old Testament laws pertaining to how we can approach God, when we can, who can, at what point, are we clean, are we unclean? Those are all finished through the work of Jesus Christ. We have complete and utter access to Jesus. The whole, therefore, sacrificial system was but a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. A copy and a shadow, and everything was pointing to Jesus Christ, who was going to fulfill them all. Again, the first, therefore, is obsolete. Hebrews 8 and verse 13. Those of you, I think some of our Berean groups uh, this last year were going through the book of Hebrews. I think there's still a... I think, Bryce, are you still going through Hebrews in your group? You just finished. Perfect. So those young adults who've gone through the book of Hebrews, you understand this whole sacrificial system, this whole priestly system, and, and whoever the author of Hebrews was, he's making the point that it was all completely finished through the work of Jesus Christ who fulfilled them all. Okay, so that pertains to the ceremonial laws. All the ceremonial laws were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. What about the covenantal laws? Well, the covenant laws were also, from the Old Testament, were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This pertains to the Sabbath in Exodus chapter 32. And um, I'm going to read that to you, and I'm going to emphasize a few words for you as I go through it. 
Some people still think that the Sabbath is authoritative for our lives. I want to read it to you from Exodus chapter 32. As for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore, you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. Forever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Six days of work may be done, but on the seventh day, it is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So, the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations. It is a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel. The Sabbath was always a sign. A sign of the covenant between Israel and God. Just like this ring is a sign between Jody and, my, and myself in terms of our marriage, similarly so is, was the Sabbath day. It was for Jewish people. It was not for us. And it was also to show the covenant that you were proud to be connected to God the Father. Similarly with circumcision. Circumcision never got you right with God. It never, if you got circumcised or if you observed the Sabbath, oh, therefore by observing there were, we are now right with God. No. These were signs, indicators that you were proud to be connected to God. Do you remember the story of Moses where God was going to kill him? He's going to kill Moses because he didn't have his son circumcised. Why? Because the circumcision is some, some sort of sign, some sort of moral indication that you're connected to God? No, it was a signed indication that you were connected to God. Same with the cutting of the corners of your beards or observing certain feasts. This was covenantal signs between God and Israel. But things changed when Jesus showed up. If you're taking notes, you can just jot this down. This is Philippians chapter 2. This is Paul, who was, uh, who was a Jewish man himself, became a Christian. This is Paul in Philippians chapter 2. Verse, rather, chapter 3, verses 2 to 9. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. Now listen to his testimony as a Jew. Although I myself have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whenever things were gained to me, those things I have counted lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. But all things that I used to count gain to myself in my own flesh, I count them all as rubbish. And what the Jewish people had done, instead of these being signed indicators that they were connected to God, their, their proud followership of God, they actually found righteousness in observing these, if, if you will, non-moral type laws. But it wasn't to get them right with God, it was to show that they were proud to be connected to God through signs of the covenant. 
What about the ways in which you handle wrongdoing? How do you till the land? What about if there's disputes? These were always for the Jewish people, the Jewish covenant people, to express to the world what a people of God would look like. But now, the church, the church in Jesus is the unified expression of God's people in the world. Again, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Again, this is a difference between Israel and Gentiles. Before you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And it goes on to talk about the unity after that. The church now is the unified expression of God's people to the world. The old covenant, it was the Jewish expression of their covenantal signs to the world in the New Testament. It's all of us through Jesus Christ. But then we come to a confusing passage where you remember the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. I would like you to turn there with me. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18 and verse 18. A certain ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to, to obtain eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. But then he quotes the Old Testament. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Why does he do that? Why is he quoting the Old Testament laws? If he fulfilled them all, why not quote the new teaching he's been given? Why is he quoting the Old Testament laws here? And then he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus then goes on to say, one thing is still lacking because basically money was his God. You need to give it all away. But the point here is that Jesus is quoting the Old Testament law. Why is he doing that? Why is Jesus quoting the Old Testament law? When he says, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Why is he quoting the Old Testament law for here? Because Jesus is talking on moral terms now. He's not talking on covenant terms. He's not talking on ceremonial terms. He's not talking on sacrificial terms. He's talking on moral terms. Laws pertaining loving God and loving others. The morality of God in the Old Testament, in terms of loving God and loving others, is the same morality now. It's the same. Remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, and uh, somebody says, so what's the great commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two, on these two, rest the entire law and the prophets. He's talking about the key thing is this notion of love. If you were to sum up why this is all the case in the Old Testament, it all, Jesus says, it all has to do with love. That's why when Jesus quotes these Old Testament laws, all of them has to do with love. You notice that he doesn't quote the Sabbath there to the rich young ruler. 
He quotes, don't steal, don't commit adultery, etc. About loving others and about loving God. It's the moral law of God. Nothing in, the Old nothing in the New Testament contradicts the moral law of God. Laws that have to do with loving God and loving others. However, all of the punishments. So there are laws then about how we punish those Old Testament laws. There are laws in terms of how we punish them. Those have changed. The morality hasn't changed. How we punish them is. Because in the New Covenant... All wrongdoing, all things that we do wrong in terms of morally against God or against others have been pinned to the back of Jesus Christ. So instead of it being pinned to our back, if you commit adultery, you get stoned. Commit a bestiality, you get killed. That's not the case anymore. If that was the case, the Apostle Paul would have been in deep trouble. If that's the case, the woman caught in adultery would have been in trouble. But Jesus changed the way in which the punishment got handed out. Instead of the punishment being handed directly to you and you will pay for it on your back, now it gets paid on the back of Jesus Christ. So all the laws pertaining to any kind of punishment in the Old Testament as it pertains to the moral laws have been changed because it got pinned on Jesus Christ, an incredible gracious offer. I could go on for quite a while on that. All the punishments for disobeying the Old Testament moral laws have been changed by pinning them to the back of Jesus Christ. What happened is this. In the Old Testament, whenever we see those punishments, it's not as if God was wrong in doing those punishments. And it's not as if God was not uh, actuating justice. He was. In other words, whenever you look at the Old Testament and you see that somebody who murdered somebody else got killed, you actually see that justice happens. That's justice. Jesus ushered in something completely different. He uttered in mercy. And Matthew chapter 5, Luke chapter 6 talks all about this. Instead of the justice, somebody takes your eye out, you take their eye out because that's justice. He talks about turning the other cheeks. He talks about mercy now. And we can hand out mercy because Jesus Christ has gone before us and is our example. And those who claim to live and walk in Jesus ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. 1 John 2.6 so the difference is now we hand out mercy, we don't hand out justice. That doesn't mean that the justice of the land is gone. That's another question. <laughs> we'll deal with that maybe another next year. But how justice, how punishment is handed out is not handed out in terms of justice. It's now handed out in terms of mercy. And the primary example of that, of course, is Jesus Christ. This is heady stuff. And I hope you're taking good copious notes and your questions are ready to roll. I'm going to give you one last illustration and this happened to a friend of mine. A friend of mine um, knew somebody where their uh, husband had died in a tragic accident and she was devastated, of course, as you can imagine. And then she, but she found out that there was this seance happening and in this seance she could actually contact her husband who had died in this tragic accident, didn't get time to talk to him, speak to him in the end. So, she had this opportunity now to hear from her husband. She's a Christian woman, and she said she went ahead and did it. And this friend of mine was talking to his uh, relative and said, you know, I, I can't believe that as a Christian they went and did this. And the woman of this husband, sorry to make, make it all confused, but this other Christian said, I do the same thing. 
I'd do the same thing. If my, if my husband were to die in a tragic accident, I'd go to a seance too, and I'd want to talk to him too. My friend said, how can you do that? Clearly in the Bible, Leviticus 19.31, he didn't quote the verse, but he says, clearly in the Bible, it says we're not supposed to seek out mediums. And the guy's response was very quick. So do you cut the corners of your beard? And he was stuck. He was stuck. Because he doesn't do that anymore. This is an Old Testament law. So I guess this thing about mediums is gone too, so we're finished. These are the kinds of questions that make us go to the Word and understand how the law was fulfilled. And I hope now you'd be able to answer that question based on what you've just learned here this morning. I know I've gone like a freight train. We don't have very much time. Uh, so, sorry to end abruptly, but I'm gonna throw it back over to Andrew. And um, as, as he's kind of preparing here, the, the key thing that I want you to understand is that the law was always pointing towards Jesus. It was always pointing towards Jesus when he came. And that's why it's so important to understand that he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled it. But the morality of God from the Old Testament didn't change to the New Testament. God's morality did not change. And so the moral code of loving God and loving others stays intact. But when we disobey that moral code, how the punishments are handed out to us is completely different now. It was handed to Jesus as our replacement. More on that one if you want later when we get into a dialogue. I'll hand it over to Andrew. So my question was um, was given to me that I brought to Dan and Bryce on Wednesday was why does God seem to allow for sex outside of the marriage covenant in the Old Testament? And the example was concubines. Why does God allow for concubines, which is prevalent in the Old Testament? My understanding of the question was uh, why does God allow, like seemingly allow for polygamy? And I was going off to the multiple wives context. On Friday, I realized that uh, maybe that wasn't the, the direct nature of the question, so I phoned the person who asked it, and he says, well, that's not what I meant. I meant like, you know, like actual concubines. You're, you're, you're a married man, and uh, you can go off and take all these concubine women without, without, and so this looks like adultery, and so on and so forth. But uh, as I was expressing that question to someone else, someone says, well, I was gonna text you a question anyway, and I was gonna ask about multiple wives anyhow. So what turned into one question for me turned into two. So my, so my, my answer, or my question is two-part. Number one, why does God seem to allow for multiple wives in the Bible? Number two, why does God allow for sex outside of the marriage covenant in the Old Testament, i.e. concubines? And so I've got a really easy question. <laughs> and, uh, and I'll be honest with you, uh, like, I say this often, well, not often, but once in a while, but I actually come to with fear and trembling over this issue because I, I, every question I got answered, I had 50 more behind it. So um, this is one thing that I'm still in the work in progress on this question because when you get a question on Friday, you know, Wednesday or Friday night, you're preaching on a Sunday, you're not going to become an expert usually maybe in a topic in three days. But, uh, but I am prepared and I do feel like I've learned a ton of stuff. And uh, so, anyway, let's, let's have some fun with this one. If you ask easier questions, it'd be much faster. <laughs> yeah. Like, if you what does Ephesians chapter 1 mean? I mean, that's, <laughs> you can do that, yeah. But, uh, well, the thing is, these questions are debated, right? I mean, you, you amongst scholars and pastors, and they, you get all sorts of funky answers. So, I mean, it's, um, it's interesting. So, okay, we can't deny polygamy was rampant in the Bible. We can't deny it. 
It wasn't only the ungodly that did this, it was the godly as well. Abraham had two women in his life, two other women other than Sarah. Uh, Elkanah, the Levitical priest in 1 Samuel, had two wives. Uh, Jacob had Rachel and Leah. King David, 1 Chronicles 3 lists eight wives and many concubines. And the grand prize winner, Solomon, or modern day Hugh Hefner, First uh, Kings 11, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Talk about permanent marriage counseling. <laughs> so I'm glad he's not in our church. Uh, so how do we account for this? First of all, we need to remind ourselves of God's original design. So turn to Matthew 19. Matthew 19.4. So, as you turn to Matthew 19.4, here's the context. Uh, the Pharisees come to Jesus in a test. They want to know if it's lawful for anyone to divorce their wife, and because uh, they're writing certificates and, and, and getting rid of them and so on. And so, um, Jesus gives them an answer. And he goes back to the original design of marriage in the garden. And he says this in verse 4. He answered and said, Have you not read from that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The key words in there is uh, when a man, um, sorry, uh, is really the, the wife singular. He doesn't say, um, you know, that uh, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wives, plural, as wife singular. That's important. And the two, not the three, the four, the five, the seven hundred shall become one flesh. That's important as well. So he goes back to the original intent of one man, one woman in the sanctity of marriage. That's, the, that's God's design. So from that point of view, we say, how do we count for the polygamy? Well, it wasn't God's original design. That was not how it went. Okay? Number two, in the case of kings like Solomon and David, it's absolutely forbidden. It was forbidden. Turn with me now to Deuteronomy 17. Verse 15. 17 verse 15. I'll give you the context first. Uh, what's happened here is uh, God's giving instruction if you appoint a king in the, in the land of Israel. Uh, here's how I want it to look. Uh, first of all, you can't have a foreigner in verse 15, he says. You can't have a foreigner. Uh, it has to be someone from your own country. But really, the verse for us picks up in verse 16. He says, Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, You shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Notice the three multiplications there. Horses, uh, wives, and uh, gold and silver. I think the reference in horses, the references to horses is actually military strength, and the reference to silver and gold is wealth. So the, 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 the command would be this. Uh, God didn't want the kings relying on their own military strength or wealth for their securing their positions of authority within the land. He, they wanted, God wanted them to rely on Him for their provisions in this area. Uh, part of trusting Him then was not multiplying wives. Now the reason is clear here. He didn't want these pagan um, wives coming in um, who would then introduce foreign deities and, and turn their heart away from God in, in soul, soul worship. But one of the reasons that um, the kings would even take wives in the first place was to forge political alliances with neighboring nations. So you can imagine that, right? If you have a, a nation that you're, like, got, got maybe has a history of war, you'd sign a political alliance so that you could create peace between borders. If they had service, goods and services you wanted to trade with, 
to help your economy, you would uh, forge, forge a political alliance to do so. But one of the ways of ratifying that alliance was for the one king to give the other, uh, to give the other king his daughter in marriage. And that's exactly what uh, uh, Solomon did. In 1 Kings chapter 3, he takes the wife of Pharaoh, the daughter of Egypt, for, uh, and, and makes an, the actual word there is he makes an alliance with him. So that was the way he secured it. In 1 Kings chapter 10, later on, guess what he's doing? He's trading goods and services with Egypt. One of them, horses. <laughs> Interestingly enough, from Deuteronomy. So again, and then he's selling them to the Hittites as well. So you see this, like this, uh, this, uh, in, this God didn't want the multiple wives, though. The primary reason was uh, for the, the, um, the issue of worship. Now, so again, back to the original design of Matthew with Jesus, and the way he did it in the garden with God did that and Eve, and then the, the instruction of the case clearly plaguing me as something God is not in favor of. However, even though it wasn't in favor of it, and that's something he wouldn't embrace, we can see from Scripture that it was somehow permitted to some degree. But there are other areas of Scripture where God permits something that he never originally designs and doesn't want and is not in his favor. I'll give you an example. The Matthew 19 passage. The hardness of heart issue. Uh, he says, the Pharisees say, well, we're divorcing and remarrying and divorcing and remarrying. And like, what's the problem with that? And, and Jesus says, uh-uh, God put a, 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 a why, why is that a problem? Because Moses allowed for it. He says, yeah, yeah, but do you know why Moses allowed for it? Because of the hardness of your heart. In other words, it wasn't God's original design. This was, this was a, a stage two process to try to deal with a problem within the nation of Israel. Another one is the king issue. Uh, the, the nation, uh, Israel wants a king desperate to be like the other nations and God says don't do it it's not going to go well for you they keep crying out want a king and then Samuel is talking to God about it and says you know what Samuel let him have a king let him have him tell him how it's going to go for them which is negative but just let him have him anyway and sure enough they go and Samuel says by the way you can have a king but life's not going to go well for you and then they, then they hear that the tragedy is going to come and they start crying out to God for forgiveness for these issues but regardless Two areas of not original design that, we, that gets permitted is the kingship. Again, God wants to be the, the sole king of Israel, but they want Saul, David, Solomon, all these people, and the area of divorce. So, in, so somehow, in, uh, we see in, in um, the uh, issue of polygamy, then, not God's original intent, not his embrace, but there's a, there's, it's been permitted for this to go. Um, and again, the key though in this whole thing is not one relationship in which this occurred ever went well for any of the men. Not a single issue ever went well. Whenever there was more than one wife in place, it was terrible. Elkanah and Jacob experienced extreme jealousy between the wives. Um, and one always knew that they were second fiddle to the other one. Abraham, the model of faith in the New Testament, could the most godly man, married to probably the most godly woman, she's, she's a representative of all females in terms of character, in the, for, you know, in 1 Peter. These two men and women who are the most, who, are, who I would love to have the faith of them, God uses them as examples, can't even make this work in marriage. And there's huge uh, infighting. And I found a quote I thought was, was brilliant, and this is the difference between uh, maybe a scholar's language and mine. But they said this, uh, when they, whenever time there was polygamy was present, there was unmitigated sociological disaster that created heartbreak and sowed family discord. So there you go, on the polygamy issue. 
There's one exception. There's one exception that I could find when there was a secondary wife allowed. And uh, this is interesting. It's in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 6. And you don't have to turn it, I've written it for you. Um, it reads this way. So, when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of the dead brother, so his name will not be blotted out from Israel. This is an important text because remember the Pharisees come to, sorry, the Sadducees come to Jesus in Matthew 22 and they say what to him? They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees don't believe that. And they come and want to play games with them. And so they say to him, uh, we have a question for you. In the resurrection, ha ha ha, which is never going to happen. Uh, in the resurrection, uh, I want to give you a scenario. There's seven brothers. And uh, the first brother is married and the wife dies. And then the second brother takes on uh, in accordance with Deuteronomy 25, the, the wife, and then he dies, and so on. And then they say, so in the, in the, in the heaven, like in the resurrection, they should say, whose wife is she? Because she's married seven times. And Jesus gives them an amazing answer, and the whole thing is done with. But the point is, is that this was prevalent in Jesus' day, and uh, this law that was given centuries before Jesus even lived, uh, in terms of his incarnation, uh, everyone knew about this law, and that was a practice in Israel. But here's the key to this, this verse. Because in the area of polygamy, we always put it in a negative context about, oh, that person just wants to, like, you know, just looking for sexual pleasure, and that's all they're interested in. Look at the context of this. This has nothing to do with God in terms of the area of sexual desire. It has nothing to do either with lack of commitment to this woman, and it has nothing to do with selfish motivation. It's a continuation of the family line. So that, the last sentence, he will not, the name will not be blotted out from Israel. So again, this was not a, a unique, this was a unique circumstance in Israel, not a world mandate to us as Christians to go ahead and do this. But again, this was uh, to preserve the family line within Israel and whatnot. So. Maybe it's five and six. Is it five? Oh, and maybe six? it's five and six. Sorry, five and six. Thank you for that. Yeah. It is five and six. Thank you. I thought, man, a question already? <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> I'm in trouble. So that's uh, that's uh, the issue of polygamy. So again, um, hopefully that's somewhat clear. So therefore, question number two. Why does God allow for sex outside the marriage covenant in the Old Testament, i.e. concubines? The starting assumption, which even I had, and maybe you didn't, but I did, was that the area of concubines, I was basically in my mind like a sex slave. Right? That's what you think of, like a harem to like a king and so on. And so there's no commitment and there's no required and it's just more of just like, you know, this pleasure and so on. In other words, if you have concubine, you're cheating on your spouse. That, that, again, I think that's implicit in the question. Why does God allow for sex outside the marriage covenant? How, how can this be possible? Well, when I started studying what a concubine was, I learned a ton of stuff. A ton of stuff that changed my understanding of this. There are two classes of wives in Scripture. Two classes of wives. The first is a free wife, and the second is a slave wife. The free wife is born to a free man. So she was given as a wife when a man approached her father with a dowry. 
And if her father consented with the dowry, he'd give her in marriage. If he declined, she would not be allowed to get married. Uh, you can cross-reference Exodus 21.16 for this procedure. Um, typically then, after that covenant was made and the dowry was had, and, and then there was a huge celebration with a wedding feast, and that accompanied their relationship. All of you in here, because of the context we live in, are free wives, if you're a female. All of us are in free marriages. None of us here are, are, are slaves. In their context, so slavery existed, and we talked a lot about biblical slavery versus the slavery that brainwashes us, like you know, with the blacks and the Americans and, and all that. That's not the slavery the Bible talks about. But slavery was present in the Bible in the biblical way. And in this situation, a slave wife could be acquired in two ways. Number one, she could be a capture of war, captured in war, Deuteronomy 21:10, or she could be sold by her father. Maybe he would be in a situation of poverty or something like that, and he needed to, and he couldn't take care of his daughter. He didn't want her to go hungry and to be in trouble. That's Exodus 21:7 and Deuteronomy 15:12. Now, when he took that wife, that woman in, it could be for two reasons. One, it could it could be to increase work productivity on their farm or their acreage or whatever within their jobs, um, like an employee, or it could be to act, act as a surrogate mother. Act as a surrogate mother. Now, this is important. This is where I learned something new. You move from a position of being a, a slave to a concubine when sexual relations are involved. I'll say that again. You move from slavery to concubine once sex is in the picture. Now, when this occurred, you were given wife status as well as rights and privileges equal to a free wife. Exodus 21, verses 7 to 11 says this. Um, if you take a slave, uh, a slave woman and you, give, you take her in marriage, you're to provide her with food, shelter, and conjugal rights, basically intimacy, the same as it was your, your free wife. If the father was to buy the, the woman for her son for marriage, the father was to treat the woman, and I quote, like your own daughter. So you're getting the picture here? This is not some kind of sex, sex that I'm going to just take and discard. True pagan kings probably did that. Some of Israel's kings might have done that. That was not God's intention. If you're going to take into, uh, uh, this woman into, into, uh, for your son or into your own uh, family, you would treat her as a wife, treat her as a wife, give her the same rights and privileges as a wife, and it was, and it was for those two purposes. Again, like, um, soon as sex, yeah, as soon as sex entered the picture, then you were to treat her in that way. Now, we have two great examples of surrogate mothership in the Bible. And this is extremely important for me that a concubine is seen as a wife, because right now you're like, where'd you get that from, okay? So Abraham is married to Sarah. Hagar is a maid. She's a handmaid. She's not, she's not in relationship with, with Isaac or uh, with Abraham in any way. Sarah and Abraham come up with a plan to have children through Hagar, the maidservant. Now, I want you to show you in Genesis 25, verses 1 to 2, the definition of, of oh, sorry, this is, uh, let me rephrase. That's what they did with Hagar. Later on, they did it with Keturah as well. So, so my illustration still proves the point of Hagar, but the, the example is Keturah, his third, his third wife. Um, Abraham takes another wife, notice the word term wife, whose name is Keturah. She bore to him these, these sons. Looking chronicles to depicting the same genealogy, if you can just flip forward. The sons of Abraham are Isaac and Ishmael, these are their genealogies. The sons of Keturah, Abraham's concubine, who she bore. 
concubine, wife, interchangeable in terms of definitions, using Keturah as the, as, the, as the line for producing more seed. Another one is Jacob and Leah and Rachel. Notice this in Genesis 30. Um, now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob and she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister and she said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. Jacob then says, well my God, I cannot have the power to do this. And then she says, well here's my maid, so servant, no sexual relationships yet, this is just a servant, like a slave, uh, Bilal, go to her so that to her too I may have children. So she gave him her maid Bilal as a wife. Go from maid to wife, i.e. concubine. Okay? And so this is the process. And then look at what Rachel says. Once there's children born, <laughs> she says, God vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice and given me a son. Given me a son, but it wasn't, she didn't have the child. But in a slave relationship, the master is still in charge. So it's very interesting, though, that, again, he, the maid was never touched by, by um, Jacob sexually. Soon as he was going to do that, though, he was, she was to be made a wife, and there was, and so, and there was to be provisions not put in place for her. So this is super important. One example of being a captor of war, a captor of war, moving from slavery to wife position, is in, uh, is in the next passage. Deuteronomy 21.10. So when you capture a woman in war, here's what you do. You shall remove the clothes of her captivity, and she shall remain in your house and mourn her father and mother a full month. So the period of mourning to get over the loss of her family. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she will be your wife. Again, there's no such thing as this sex slave without commitment. And that's God, isn't that God throughout the whole scriptures? You can never be sexually active and not take responsibility for, for the woman or have commitment to her in terms of provisionary care and emotional stability in all these areas of life. So again, how, when the question was alluded to in this way, uh, that the, the, the question that was originally given assumes that a concubine, I think, is a sex slave and you just sort of discard this person and they're even committing adultery. It's clear from these passages in the Old Testament, these are unique situations in Israel. <laughs> they are. Um, but you can clear from the Old Testament here that what's happening is um, they're to be, take the position of wife and there's to be a full commitment to that person. And uh, so, uh, again, to try to eliminate jealousy between two spouses. But again, just, we know it never goes well. And we, I can't find even an example of concubines in scripture where things go well. Hagar, again, is probably the best example. So again, um, for us, uh, I, hopefully you can see the difference between um, that God would never have these things as his original intent, but um, just like other areas of scripture, that's been the case as well, and yet here we are with these situations. So I thought, uh, I'll do an illustration for you if I didn't make any sense. So I'm going to ask my free wife to come up and my new concubine to be <laughs> Jody. <laughs> I didn't hear I was going to be used today. I didn't know exactly. Category. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to be up there? You have, yeah, you have the courage to do this. That's what you know. Yeah. It's not my beauty. <laughs> So, 
I'm a man in Israel, and I, I am attracted to Janice, and I want to marry her. So I go to the husband, of, or her dad, and I give her 50 shekels of silver, or whatever the dowry is. And he agrees, and so he allows me to marry her. And we have a great, a great partnership. <laughs> we consummate the marriage, we consummate the marriage, and we have a huge wedding feast. And we're going along life, and uh, two things could be happening in our lives. Either A, we're, we have a business, and, and work is just, we just can't handle the work to ourselves. We don't have enough children, or, or whatever the reason is. We need more workers. And so uh, Israel has captured some nations in war, and, um, and so that's my option. I can buy a, a slave woman, um, and so Dan could represent the, uh, the, the captor of war. The, the military, yeah, or, or we're barren. We're barren, or she's past, she either can't get pregnant, or she's past, uh, 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 um, past due, past her due date's past time, which I'm like, you know, like a milk, milk carton. And, uh, <laughs> 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 you and Dennis are awesome. you're used to me, I mean, I, I, yeah. So, yeah, and so, uh, I, we, we decide that we would like a slave woman. So Dan could be the other two of those situations. So let's just let's just say that this is a daughter uh, husband situation, or daughter father situation, and uh, he's in poverty and he can't afford to take her. So we make an arrangement. We make an arrangement, and I give him payment for. <laughs> So the good thing is I'm used to paying two dollars. So this is a compliment by giving twenty. So, yeah. so then I take her into my family. <laughs> you know, culturally it even feels weird to do this even right now. So I take her my family, and so now she can work for us, and she is a slave. But if at any moment we decide to enter into sexual relationships, especially in a barren situation, she now moves. A my concubine, as soon as I enter into sexual relationships, but more importantly, she becomes my wife. So I'm not, I don't, I don't know, I'm not saying Solomon and these guys are, are actually doing this in a godly way, but God's intent was there was commitment, she was a wife status, and I treated her as such. The hard thing is this, good luck, good luck, the three of us making this work without, without any social and family situations going on from here on in. And it's just a bad, a bad idea. But Janice said this really well. And I was like, why did I think of this? When I told her the scenario in the car yesterday, Janice said this, oh, it's basically a modern day fertility clinic. I'm like, that's a good way of saying it. We, what do we do when you can't have children? You go to a fertility clinic and you have all these drugs and medication and you freeze your sperm and you freeze your eggs and all these crazy things to try to get like, you know, babies and so on. There is no procedures like that. And this is the way to carry on the family line and to move forward and keep Israel's name going on. So, all right, thanks for your wonderful... Uh... <laughs> okay, let's uh, open up the dialogue.